You got to roll with the changes, roll with chalupas. Everybody loves chalupas, even if your body's changing. Okay, that was not well thought out. Hmm. This is Rish Outfield, and unless I delete this, you're listening to the Rish Outcast. We had a big snowstorm today. We are having a big snowstorm today. Sorry, that's my uh, revision there. All over America, people have been having snowstorms, and it's been interesting to see. I guess it started out on the East Coast and is moving across the country, and it took a full day to get to where I am. But it's those great big snowflakes. The big, like, dime or nickel-sized snowflakes that are, I guess I'll say magical. I don't, I don't want to oversell it, but I remember when I was a little boy, so I grew up out in the country, and, you know, we had to shovel the walk, or we had to, you know, go out and feed the chickens uh, when we had cows, we had to feed them in the winter. And I would complain, you know, when it was snowing. And my dad would always say, well, the weather's got to warm up for it to snow. You should be worried when it's not snow, when it's too cold to snow. And, uh, you know, I'm the age he was then when he was telling me this, I guess. And he was right. Like right now, it is snowing pretty hard but it's not that cold. It's, it's like perfect out walking with your best gal winter weather. The snowflakes, they hit the ground and then they melt. And so everything is wet and super reflective. And so the red lights are reflective. The headlights are reflected. It's, it's pretty. It's very cinematic. You know, a lot of times I will notice when I'm watching a movie or a TV show that they have hosed down the the road. They've hosed down the parking lot and all that because it just, it helps reflect the light. It makes things visually prettier. And once I, I noticed it, I can't unnotice it. I keep seeing it. And it's just a reminder that this is a movie. But it, yeah, it really does work. This is, maybe I shouldn't be out driving. But it is just great to look at. And I decided I would do an episode because I would probably be, unless I'm killed in a car accident, I would probably be driving for a good long time. Yeah, And the thing is, visibility is not bad. The two things that cause car accidents in in wintertime are visibility being restricted and the black ice. And it's warm enough that there's not going to be any black ice. And it's clear enough. There's no fog or anything like that. That I I think it'll be fine. Famous last words. Yeah, if you're hearing this, then I obviously survived. (laughs) What was I talking about? Was I talking about the snow? Wouldn't it be great if this episode came out in June? And you're just like, wow, this guy does not read the room. Uh, I don't think it'll come out in June. 
It is the very, very end of 2020. Plague year 2020. And one of my goals for the year had been to put out another audio collection. And so at the very end of the year, I got out the text document that I had created for the fourth volume of audio fiction for me to put together. And it was basically just the title page, the copyright page, and then it it was in a folder with all of the audio files that pertained to it so far, plus a bunch of others. One of the things that I like to do with my collections is throw in little bonus stories that are only available in those collections that I've never done an episode for or are just flash fiction. Uh, Every once in a while, uh, I'll put in a drabble. Just as like a, uh, here's incentive for buying this. Even if you've heard most of these stories on my podcast. So when I finished recording My Friend of Misery and... I still had many, many, many hours of editing ahead of me. I decided to grab a couple of short stories for inclusion in this next collection. And one of those stories was called Run Away. It was a loser in the Broken Mirror contest that we did. Uh, Someone arrives in town and realizes that everyone is exactly the same, that one. And another one is called... Roll with the changes. And that's the story I'm going to share with you today. Now, before the snowstorm hit, you know, there was talk that we were going to get a big storm today. And before I had all these lofty plans of places that I was going to go to, errands I was going to get done. There's a Walmart about 22 miles away. And last night I ran out of tape, packing tape, And I looked it up and it said that that Walmart was the only one in my county that had that packing tape, which seems unlikely right now that I'm telling you this, but that's what it said yesterday. And so I was going to run over there last night. I was at the library when I discovered this and then I decided, no, I'm going to write. That's why I came to the library. I'm going to write. And then tomorrow I'll go to this Walmart. And this morning, before the uh, snowstorm hit, I looked and it no longer said any of the Walmarts in my county had this packing tape. And so either it was wrong yesterday or somebody bought it all during the night. I, I guess the third option is that it's just inaccurate and they still have it, but it just says that they don't. I don't know. But what I was going to do, if the snowstorm was really bad, like bad enough that they were saying on the radio or the, on the radio, on the telegraph, they were saying, do not drive your horse and carriage on the cobblestone streets. Stop. High snow warning. Stop. No, uh, if they said on the news, hey, don't get on the freeway if you can help it. There's tons of accidents and stuff. If, if that were the case, then I was just going to go to the library again and sit down and expand this story. One of the things that I always do 
when I publish a story is I will write a little author's note. Usually I call it a word about the story, although sometimes I call it author's note. And in writing the word about this particular story, I said, you know, there's this part in the middle that I kind of wish I could expand because I've got a couple of ideas for fun little things that happen. But, you know, it's a short story. I'm happy with it the way it is. I don't see any need to expand it. But today I was thinking, I don't know that that's true. I would like to just write a couple of pages that happen there. I don't know. Uh, it's a moot point, though, because I've decided to go ahead and get on the freeway and drive over to that Walmart, check the tape, you know, get some other stuff, too. It's not just, I'm, well, I'm using the tape as an excuse to drive over there. How's that? But uh, the snow, the great big snowflakes have stopped and it's just become rain. There's still high visibility. I'm going to see. If it turns out that the roads are bad, then I will turn around and I will hit the library and I will do that. But in the meantime, I'm going to present to you this story, Roll With the Changes. And I hope that you like it. Roll With the Changes by Rish Outfield Stephanie was raking the leaves in the front yard, all by herself. This was a thankless job. A Sisyphean task, her husband had called it, and all through October, if the leaves on the lawn were raked and disposed of, the next day it would look like nobody had done any yard work at all. There was an even layer of yellow and orange at the base of all the trees every day till the snows came, and sometimes even after that. Oh, and raking up frozen-together snowy leaves was even less fun than the other kind. Not that leaf-raking had ever been a fun job, but when Joe had been around, it had been a bearable one, an opportunity to talk, to exercise a bit, to be together. Raking leaves with Joe hadn't been so bad, with laughter and singing and, well, just having someone to hold the bags open while you scooped the leaves off the grass was an immeasurable advantage. Of course, Joe wasn't around to help her any more. He was gone. Gone from the house. Gone out of town. Gone out of her life. Her husband hadn't been happy, it seemed, and was a wanderer and not a one-woman man. He'd fancied himself a good-enough poker player to try his hand at it instead of the good job at the tiling company his brother-in-law owned— and he'd overestimated his card-playing talents, it turned out. You'd think losing all their life savings and 99% of his pride would have coaxed Joe back home, back to the bosom of his wife. But he still had a tiny sliver of pride left, and he'd never been too impressed with her bosom. So he'd lit out, taking his Mustang, which he doted on a hell of a lot more than he did his spouse, and went off again. Apparently, according to Stephanie's sister-in-law, with a TGI Friday's waitress in tow. For eight months, he'd been gone. 
All she'd heard from him was a couple of bills that came due, which she'd paid, and registration papers for the 1989 Ford Mustang, which she'd happily burned. She didn't know why she hadn't sold the house and gotten an apartment somewhere. She barely made enough as a bank teller to pay the mortgage, let alone property taxes, utilities, internet, etc. And she didn't know why she couldn't move on, since she was sick of hating herself when she looked in the mirror. Did she hate herself because she'd not been able to hold on to her man? Or was it because, deep down, she still loved him? Lose-lose, when you came down to it. Stephanie's leg, which she'd broken her sophomore year, had started to ache. And that meant it was going to rain. Either that, or she'd been working too hard out here, which was a possibility. The pile of leaves in front of her was getting pretty high. It was time to drag the big green trash barrel over, or start unrolling hefty bags. Regardless of her choice, it would be... She froze. Out of the corner of her eye, she had seen... A man was in the street, a block or so down. He was walking toward her. She let go of the rake, but did not hear it fall. It was Joe. He was shambling toward her, carrying only a little valise. He wore no jacket, but had on ratty, too large overalls, and had a look on his face. Couldn't be contrition. Not from Joe. Stephanie exhaled. She took a step forward. She'd go marching over there, meet him halfway, and... What? Slap him. Spit in his face. Kick him in the blueberries. She broke into a run. Most likely, she'd just start screaming at him. Start with how she'd felt when he left, and fill him in on all she'd had to do without him these past months. Still walking... Joe looked at her pathetically from the middle of the street, like a big, dumb puppy dog. Stephanie threw her arms around her husband and just held on. He'd come back to her. She smelled his body. Not the best he'd ever smelled, but not a trace of alcohol, no evidence of other women, and kissed him on the neck. She felt him kiss her on the hair above her ear and realized she was crying. Of course she was crying. She had been a woman alone, abandoned and humiliated. And now she wasn't. A car horn sounded, breaking up the little reunion. They got out of the way, moving down the sidewalk, stepping on the leaves from neighbors' trees. They walked back toward the house, hand in hand. She hadn't said anything, but the tears were flowing good and hard, and she wanted to force them away before she got to the questions, the explanations, the moment when she'd decide where to go from here. The little suitcase he carried was too small to hold many belongings, practically an overnight bag. She wondered and got a strange little jolt of satisfaction, if it held all his earthly possessions. Where's your Mustang? She managed, 
when they were standing on the grass, under the big tree that had made so much trouble for her in the fall. Joe only shook his head. Again, a bit of satisfaction, knowing it was gone. But that wasn't enough. For eight months, she'd wondered what he'd been doing, if he'd been working, where he was living, and with whom. Now she wasn't so sure she wanted to know. When he finally did speak, it was to ask, Raking some leaves? And his voice sounded tired, strained. She said, Uh-huh. Need any help? Joe asked. And Stephanie felt something cold inside her melt away. She took him back. For the next couple of days, things were good. Joe was clearly contrite. And he didn't talk much, but was attentive, grateful for her company, and eager to please or listen to whatever she had to say. It was like when they were first married. But even then, he wasn't like this. It was in the way he watched her, in the way he'd smile. Joe had changed. He told her he was happy to be there, that he hoped he could make her happy too, that she was pretty and good, and if she wanted him to go, he would walk away, leave her better off without him. But she didn't want that. She wanted this, what she had right now, the new Joe Harsberg. He was even different in bed, like someone else, someone she liked better. But he had definitely changed. Something had clearly happened to him in his time catting around, because he sometimes forgot things, things he should have known. Like he'd been gone ten years instead of a few months. But then, every once in a while, he'd remember some little detail that Stephanie had herself forgotten, like when he'd sing that Ed Sheeran song thinking out loud to her in the mornings while making coffee. She had done just that when they'd both had the same schedule, and that song was new. And then it had irritated the hell out of him, as he claimed, Morning time should be quiet time. They'd been reunited for less than a week, when she asked him whether he'd be going back to the flooring house. The what? he asked in that new way he had, as though caught napping in class. Work. You gonna ask Christopher for your old job back? Oh, my brother-in-law's tiling company, Joe said, as though he'd just remembered. If I must, I have a little money. It should do us for now. Well, I'll have to go back to the bank soon. I've only got two more personal days left till next year. That's misfortunate, he said, which was odd. I have some valuables I can sell, if you choose to leave your job. My job, she repeated, then thought about the little suitcase he'd arrived with, now stuck at the top of the bedroom closet, with a drop cloth over it. Is that what you had in that bag of yours? Valuables? No. The valise is separate. 
And I'd ask you, if you love me, not to scrutinate it. She had no answer to that, except to later check to see if scrutinate was a real word. Can I ask you something? Joe asked. She only hesitated a second before saying, Of course. She knew what he was going to ask, and she would have to decide whether to be honest with him or not. But his question was a strange one. Can you say desalinization backwards? What? Noitazinolacid, you mean? She had always been able to visualize words in reverse, ever since she learned to read. It was a purely useless talent, but it sometimes kept her mind occupied in boring situations, like raking leaves or cooking romantic meals for one. That's quite a gift you have there, Stephanie, he said, looking pleased. I just wanted you to know. It took her more than a second to reply to that. Thanks, Joe. The changes in him became more and more apparent as the next few days came. She got home from work, and he was waiting for her, having baked lasagna and bought flowers. I missed you, he said, which she had longed to hear for eight months, and handed her a C's candy sack with some chocolates and a bundle of dollar bills inside. They turned out to be hundreds. Three thousand dollars. If you care to quit your job, there is more available, Joe said, his brow raised in anticipation. Whatever will bring you joy. Joe, she said, putting the sack down. Tell me what happened to you out there. Happened? You've changed so much. Is this all from playing cards? Yes, this money is from that. I had struggles, too, and realized what's important, truly. You. And trying to make you smile. Yes, I've changed. But tell me it's for the worser, and I'll fix it. Or go away. It was the most he had spoken since he'd returned. And it was all so odd. Worser. Who said that? No, she said at once. It's not for the worse. I just want to know what happened to change you. And no, I don't want you to go. I can try to make you happy, Stephanie. But I had hard, lonely times. Longer than you can imagine. But now I'm here. And I want to make you happy. For that will make me happy. I love you, you see. She stared at him. He had not been particularly affectionate before, and had become an old-fashioned macho douchebag at the end, before he'd gone away. But now he sounded so wounded, vulnerable, as though he read poetry on weekends instead of watching football and WSOP. It was like that movie where the lawyer got shot and becomes a nice guy all of a sudden. I love you too, Joe. But did you get a 
head injury or— Yes, but I'm better now. He looked at her almost pleadingly. Exposed. Please say I'm better. She smiled. Yes, Joe. You're better now. And it was true. Stephanie put in her two weeks' notice at the bank, and Austin, her boss, seemed really disappointed about that. Of course, he had been a bit too concerned when Joe had left earlier in the year, and Stephanie suspected he'd been unhappy to hear of her husband's return. She was on her lunch break when the policeman arrived. Mrs. Harsberg, asked the senior detective, can we speak to you? Sergeant Rushton was a large, heavy-set man, with pink in his cheeks, like he'd just climbed a flight of stairs, or played Santa Claus on a Saturday in December. From the look on his face, it couldn't be good news. And it wasn't. Her husband Joe's body had been found, in the woods near Colorado Springs. His Mustang had been sighted off the road an hour or two prior, smashed into trees and discovered by a hitchhiker. Colorado? she asked, having just seen her husband that morning, not even four hours prior. There was no way he could get to Colorado that fast. And his car was long gone, wasn't it? Are you sure it's Joe? I— The body had a phone and a credit card on it. We, uh, checked the dental records, to be sure. No, that doesn't make any sense. When was this? The body was found on Saturday. The ID was made certain this morning. I'm sorry. She shook her head, slowly, the room suddenly spinning. The other cop asked, Had your husband been reported missing? The way he said it led her to believe he already knew the answer. No. He wasn't missing. He... He left me. He made that pretty clear. Well, ma'am, I'm sorry to bring you this bad news, the older cop said again. No, she said, and tears came unbidden to her eyes, despite knowing this was a mistake. This can't be right. Do you need me to identify the... You know, the... The body. That's already been done, ma'am, said Rushton. Well, it's been done wrong, then, Stephanie said. I guess I ought to see it. The younger policeman swallowed. You don't want to do that, ma'am. The body was... It was in poor shape. The elements got to it, I'm afraid, Rushton said. It's better not to see, believe me. E elements? she asked. How did he die? It uh, looks as though he drove off the road and, well, either an animal or something else got him. An animal? Like a bear or something? Yes, right. It tore him up pretty bad, the young cop said. Jim, admonished the older cop. No, no, tell me, 
Stephanie said. Parts of the body were, began Orton. Damaged, Rushton whispered. Missing, Orton amended. Stephanie paled. This was ghastly, but it wasn't Joe they were talking about. She'd kissed her husband that very day. The night before, they'd made love. Was the head missing? she asked at last. She didn't see how they could make such a huge mistake, even if the body had Joe's wallet on it. No, ma'am, Rushton said. And Orton, without thinking, said, His heart, I'm afraid. Stephanie squinted. Her tears were now gone. What kind of animal takes a heart? Rushton licked his lips before speaking. Well, we're thinking it wasn't an animal. We actually suspect— Never mind, she said, her stomach suddenly not handling the yogurt she'd brought for lunch all that well. I suggest you look again, gentlemen. Maybe run the fingerprints. That is not my husband. Orton seemed willing to argue, but Rushton put his hand on his partner's arm, and they apologized and excused themselves. Stephanie didn't rush home immediately. She went back to her station and tried to get back to work, but it was useless. It had been a stupid notion to begin with. She closed down her monitor and went out to the car, making it home without any memory of driving there. The front lawn had been raked, with three full garbage bags sitting at the base of the tree closest to the curb, and she could hear Joe in the backyard apparently doing that raking, too. Generous. She quietly opened the front door and went into the house. Walking through the kitchen, she saw her husband out there, gathering fallen leaves into a pile, looking very much alive. In their bedroom, she checked in his drawers, in his closet, and under the bed. She didn't know why, but something told her that valise was important, that it would give her some kind of answer. The valise in question turned out to be in the hall closet, at the top shelf that was above her head. She got a chair out of the dining room and retrieved the bag. It wasn't heavy, and opened with some kind of snap, which wasn't even locked. Inside was a jewelry box, some kind of airtight lunch container, and several sheets of paper. The jewelry box indeed had jewels in it, and they appeared to be several uncut diamonds and sapphires. They couldn't be real, could they? Her name on the papers drew her eye, and she scanned over it. It was a list of notes. Copious ones, it would seem, and it covered both sides of each sheet. She scanned the first one. One. She likes the brown part of the Oreo, but not the filling, it said. It didn't designate who she was, but it didn't have to. She went on to the next one. And the next. Two. They met at an office Christmas party December 20th, 2009, 
didn't really hit it off, but laughed at vomiting co-worker. 3. If she's in a good mood, she always sings that Ed Sheeran song in the morning. It was in a lovely, almost ornately penned handwriting. The sort of thing you'd find on a document in the Smithsonian. It was decidedly not Joe's handwriting. 4. She hates fried chicken. She likes it grilled. 5. She broke her leg when she was 16 years old, having to put away all her high school basketball dreams. Whenever it's about to rain, the leg aches. 6. She likes green olives on her pizza. These were notes about her. Details about their relationship. 7. She can say any word backwards without looking at it. Give her a sentence, and she can say it all backwards. 8. She always wanted to go to Harvard, because she mistakenly thought that was where goodwill hunting went. All of these seemingly unimportant bits of trivia were true. It was some kind of a... 9. She's allergic to cashews. A cheat sheet. It was details that could only have come from Joe, from her husband's perspective. She turned to the last page. 114. Her favorite holiday is Labor Day. Seriously. Her maternal grandparents loved that day. At this point, Replace E expired. Intermorphum undergone. It had been hastily jotted down, the handwriting much rougher here than before. It was a hundred and fourteen details of their marriage and history, exactly the sort of thing she had written up when cramming for a big exam back in school. That left the food storage container. It was actually harder to open than the valise had been, but had little latches on two ends, breaking the seal. She opened it. It was wrapped in a handkerchief. A human heart. She closed it up quickly, then stared down at the contents of the valise, putting it together in her mind. Somehow, the man raking leaves in the backyard had spoken to her husband, found out numerous personal details from him, making copious notes on his life, and then replaced him. Of course, it explained everything, except how any of it was possible. If you love me, you'll stay away from it, he had said, or something along those lines. A real human being would know that something like that would never, ever work. But that's not what she was dealing with here, was it? Any second now, he would finish back there and come into the house and catch her red-handed. And then all of this would be over. There was no way they could go back to normal, or even a few steps below that, if he knew that she knew something truly unnatural had occurred. What would happen if she confronted Joe with these three incriminating items? What would he say to assuage her fears, if anything? 
Was there anything that could convince her this was just a misunderstanding? Nah, not after she'd seen the heart. She could take the bag to the police, talk to Rushton and the other one, show them its contents, and see what they'd do about it. Let them take the next step. Or what if she instead destroyed the notes and dumped the heart into the garbage disposal? What purpose did the heart serve? Would the man, or being, in the backyard revert to his original form once it was done? Stephanie thought he would. She had one more option. She could put this stuff back in the closet, go out the front door, and then pretend she had just arrived home. She could go around the back and help with the raking, and say nothing about it to the impostor Joe. She could just ignore the seemingly ludicrous truth, the strange evidence. She could live her life. Sure sucks to rake leaves alone, she heard herself say. Stephanie put the papers back in the valise, rearranged the contents like they had been, and snapped it shut, putting it back where she had found it. She still owned two rakes, even after eight months. The End I realize before I said, I'm going to share with you my story roll with the changes, and I hope that you like it. Is that unnecessary? That's just a given, right? I hope that you like it. I think the only one that I've ever presented where I said, I don't care if you like it or not, was Journey into Another Dimension. Because that one was so absurd and ridiculous that I figured people wouldn't like it. And if they didn't, I didn't care. Because I had so much fun writing it. That remains one of the joys in writing of my whole life. Just one of those where I had a smile on my face the whole time. And I would like to repeat that, write another story that's that absurd. My Christmas story, The Many Faces of Christmas Eve, for a moment there, at its best, it has that feel, that super absurd, wait, what? Feel that Journey into Another Dimension had. But I've not written anything quite like that since then. And I feel like I am rambling on and on, but I guess that's what I do. So, yes, I do hope that you like this story. But I hope that you like all the stories that I share with you. Some are going to be better received than others. Back when we did the Dunstief, I, I knew that not every story would be loved by our listeners. But either I really liked it or Big Anklevich really liked it or both. And so somebody was going to be happy with every episode that we did. And with my own work, I've told you before, there are lots of times when I feel like, oh, shoot. You know, I used to say that's not a great story. There are times when I say, oh, shoot, that's not even good. But it's rare. I wouldn't want to share with you a story that I felt like was bad. Unless it was, you know, for educational purposes. 
We've had this conversation before. I, I know maybe you're starting to feel like we're an old married couple and you've heard all my stories before. This was a story that I wrote as my October scary story event story in 2016. And you can guess what inspired it. I think I was at my mom's house, actually, raking leaves by myself. She used to have three great big walnut trees and they had huge leaves and the leaves would all fall at the same time and that would just cover the lawn and it was a pain eventually she cut had one of them cut down uh, now there are two there a fairly big one and a small one and so the October tradition of raking the leaves is not as arduous as it used to be, but it's still pretty bad. And I remember I was raking leaves and to pass the time, I, you know, just let my imagination go. And I thought, okay, so I'm raking the leaves and I hear a sound and I look up and across the street, in the street, no, I see a woman walking toward me. Who is this woman? What does this woman want? And I thought, well, okay, you know, she's a witch. She has marked me. Not, oh, she's a zombie. A zombie woman is walking toward me. And it's like, oh, I wonder if that woman is all right. She doesn't look well. Uh, no. And then I thought, she's my wife. My wife who's been gone for a long, long time. There she is. She's come back to me. Where has she been? Why is she back? What does this mean? And I sort of fabricated this story during the time that I was raking. And later, when I had a chance to sit down, I wrote it out. And it was a very short piece, much shorter than what you've just listened to. So it starts exactly where the idea came into my head with raking and looking up and seeing the woman and it ends with what I decided by the time I was done raking, which was that I ultimately don't care that my wife is not my wife anymore, that I can live with it. I know that she is something else that only looks like my wife, but that is the point of the story. I'm okay with that. And then I had to fill in all the stuff in between. And as I was preparing to write it, I started to worry. I worried that the point of the story would be missed if I don't care that inside this woman is somebody else. I only care about the outside. And the point could be made that men only care about you know, looks about what's on the outside rather than on the inside. There's a lot of truth to that. You hear about it a lot and it's, it's, it's too bad, but that is just the way that things are. And so I thought, well, shoot, dude, I don't know what to do. And then I said, well, what if I reverse it? What if it is a wife whose husband comes back and she starts to suspect that it's not really her husband. 
And I felt like, well, that solves everything. It really does. And it's so much easier to make the abandoned wife sympathetic than an abandoned husband because everybody knows a marriage that was ended because the wife got fed up with the way that the husband was and finally left or kicked him out. We, in our Western culture, side with the woman, probably for for good reason most of the time. So I wrote the story, and it was mostly complete, and the only thing that wasn't there was I had wanted a list of things. I'm trying to remember how many things he wrote. Was it 200 things, 150 things that the alien had gotten, which were like little tidbits about his relationship with Stephanie? So what I did was one time when I was driving, I got out my phone and in the like voice memo uh, function of the phone, I almost said app. But no, it was a function. I just started going down the list of various things that the guy could have on his cheat sheet. And I I think I did 15 things. It was something that I challenged myself to do. I was probably like driving to Big Anklevich's or something. And I thought, okay, I'm going to come up with 15 things. That was on my phone. And then I... I forgot to like transfer it or play it back and type it up. And so for a couple of years, Roll With The Changes was incomplete. It was mostly the story and then a blank section where she looks over the note. And then it was the end. And it originally ended with, while she was reading his list, the husband comes in from outside and catches her reading the list and sees that she has discovered the heart. And he explains to her the deal. He said, you know, I, I, it's unfortunate that you found this. It became a little bit like Bluebeard, you know. It's unfortunate that you discovered this because I'm happy with you and I really have grown to care for you and it's been very nice to have somebody love me. I've been on this planet a long time alone, and it gets hard, but these things happen eventually. And she puts the note away and says, what heart, what note? And that's how it originally ended. And I don't know why I decided to omit that. When I finally sat down and I typed up the 15 or however many it is things that he learns but I just decided no he doesn't discover that she knows because the point of the story is that she knows and she doesn't care that can be interpreted in a number of ways I suppose but basically the point of the story is yes this is an alien and yes This is, you know, a a lie, but it's a pleasant lie. She likes this guy. This guy is a better husband than Joe was. 
And that's the point of the story is that she decides I can live with this. In, in some ways, that makes it a very positive story. And I, I wonder if I had written it as I initially intended to with a male protagonist and a, a wife that's gone, if that would have been the case, if people would have said, it's nice, it's, I like the story, or if the gender thing would have ruined it. I don't have that answer, except for that maybe I could write that story just as an exercise. I mean, it still counts as writing, right? Just to see how it feels to have a missing wife and a guy who just doesn't care that it's not really his wife because she's better. I don't know. Maybe there's no point in that. I've written the story. Why would I write it again? Just write another story. Or maybe I could write a similar story with a male protagonist, a female antagonist. I don't know what she is. And see if I can make him likable and not pathetic. I don't feel that Stephanie is pathetic at all. I think she's a very sympathetic, decent person. And we all know somebody who was in a bad relationship. And once that relationship was over, they were better off. And I, I like Stephanie. And I think if it were more autobiographical, if it were more Rish Outfield, and then she's gone and then she comes back and he missed her. He missed having somebody around to the point where he doesn't care that she has tentacles. I don't know that that would be as strong a story. I think people might just think that it's sad or that I'm sad. So, I, you know, there, there, we, there we are. That's Roll With The Changes. And the title is probably a giveaway too soon of what the ending is going to be. But I don't think so, because Roll With The Changes means being able to adapt with differences, with problems, with all the challenges that life throws at you. And her discovering that, that, that it's not the same Joe is part of the fun of the story, isn't it? Maybe this didn't need to be a short, short story. Maybe I should expand it out a little bit, but I don't know. It's okay. Stories can be short. Stories can be long. And stories can be just right. Thank you for listening to The Rish Outcast. This has been a fairly short episode, but that's okay. Episodes can be long. Episodes can be short. Episodes can be just right. I think that you are just right. Have a good evening, and I will meet with you again sometime soon. Keep those changes coming, folks. Good night. Gather round. This burlap sack filled with squirming madness was produced under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 3.0 license. That sounds crazy too, I realize. But it means that you may download and copy the files free of charge, but they do not belong to you. Hence, you cannot charge for them or alter them for your own perfidious purposes. 
What's perfidious mean, Fake Sean? It means faithless, treacherous, deceitful. Which you only know because you looked it up. Oh, well, not so impressed anymore. But what is impressive, boy, was the music in this episode, which was by Kevin MacLeod from the website incompetech.com, also under a Creative Commons license. And I suggest you consider going to www.patreon.com forward slash Outfield to support the show if you would like to encourage more of this madness. I'm trying to find a word that rhymes with changes. I can't think of any. Manges? Ranges. Finally, Lori says something other than, I don't know. Finally, Lori says something other than, I know. I don't know. Finally, Lori says something other than, I don't know. She has forgotten her phone for the moment. Finally, Lori has forgotten her phone for the moment. Finally, Lori has forgotten about her phone and says something other than, I don't know. Oh, I forgot to mention it. Maybe I don't even need to. The two policemen that show up, uh, Rushton and Orton, are the policemen, my go-to policemen whenever I need policemen, which is, I don't know, like one in five stories, one in eight stories. And uh, at one point, it was Detective Rushton and I feel like Lieutenant Orton. And in this one, it's Sergeant Rushton and Officer Orton. At some point, I need to sit down with a person that actually knows how these things work and say, okay, this is the rank that they should be. And the, the thing is, I killed off Orton in ladies' room. And uh, I never brought him back. And yet he keeps popping up in these stories, which mean they must take place before ladies' room. It was just a decision that I made years ago, let's say 2000. I wrote a story called Elizabeth in 2000, and I needed a policeman to interview the narrator at the end and ask, well, what happened? You know, tell me what happened. And I named him after my friend. Then I think later that year, I had another story where a policeman is talking and it was a pair of policemen. And so I named him after my friend and his wife. And I just thought it would be fun to always have those two policemen when I need policemen, unless it's a, like, you know, I wrote a, a horror screenplay with like a corrupt small town sheriff in one of the Carolinas. And of course, you know, his name isn't going to be Rushton or Orton. I don't know that I have any more to say about that. I did try to pad out this story, like I mentioned earlier in the episode. I, I opened it and I looked at that one little section and I thought, okay, let me just insert two vignettes here. You know, one where it's like, oh, that's a little bit odd. And one where it's like, oh my goodness, how could this be? Shut up. And I couldn't do it. I just didn't want to do it. I felt like that one paragraph summed up exactly what I was trying to write. 
And so maybe there won't be an expanded version of this. Although I'd still like to write the gender-swapped one just to see how it feels. Uh, there's a lot of things I'd like to try just to see how it feels. Good night. <laughs>